and welcome to the November 2022 issue of the BC Messenger. Real science, real Bible, real history, and real world. And it's November. Yes, we are headed into the holiday season. My wife Jennifer and I enjoy hosting this podcast and Jennifer's here again with me today. Hi friends, hope you're doing well and Looking forward to maybe attending some family gatherings over the holidays, spending extra time talking and sharing with your friends and loved ones over dinner and and holiday time spent together. Yes, and hey, on that note, maybe you have a hard time when you get together on the holidays to think about things to talk about. Um, Man, we all talk about the weather. We talk about politics. Politics, elections. Um, Yep. But man, we've got some things here that you could take and you would have the award this holiday season for the most interesting topics at your family discussion for the holidays. Definitely unique, depending on who you're talking to. But I think everybody in their family circle has somebody who's an idea person or a couple people who like to talk about interesting um, outside of the box topics. So we have got a nice assortment for you here today. And of course, you can always check out the past podcast that we've done for other fascinating topics that probably aren't going to be brought up by others at your holiday table. You know, that is one thing that we can say about our podcast, Jennifer, is that uh, if you want interesting topics to bring up, you can look through our podcast uh, episodes, go back into the archives, and we've got some interesting things that, uh, well, all joking aside, we really do believe they deserve a place around the table of discussion. And give us some pointers today. What are some things we're going to talk about in this November BC Messenger? All right, here's the rundown of what we'll be talking about on today's podcast. First, um, apologetics matter and why they are so important, especially in the landscape of the church and Christianity today, based on a new study that has come out. We're going to discuss that. Then we're going to move into the archives of the Biblical Chronologist newsletter, looking at uh, something to do with Mount Sodom and the missing millennium thesis. And then we're going to be talking about a little report from the Truth in Time ministry and some travels that have happened there. And then a couple of uh, brief testimonials about the anti-aging vitamins and some info there. And then moving right into Helen's view at the end. And she will be sharing with us some uh, laboratory in work that she's involved with, with her husband there, Dr. Ardsma, and how she plays a part in the day-to-day operations of the research. Yes, and let me just say the Real Science, Real Bible part of our podcast is coming up in just a minute when we get into the section about Mount Sodom. You're not going to want to miss this. Genesis chapter 13 records an observation made by Lot about the Jordan Valley. This is an area in Israel that's surrounding the Dead Sea. It's an area that's exceedingly dry and arid today, but it was observed by Lot as being a well-watered plain, well-watered everywhere like the Garden of Eden. We're going to get into that because we're going to see, was there ever a time in history, in the real world, when the Jordan Valley was actually well-watered, like the Garden of the Lord? How could that even be determined? Well, Many of you have listened to this podcast and you've heard about the missing millennium. We're going to get into that in just a little bit. Hang on, because I don't think you're going to want to miss that part of this podcast. 
But before we get into that, uh, Jennifer, we came across a, well, very discouraging article from Christianity Today uh, based upon Pew Research findings. And why don't you talk to us a little bit about that? Young people, mass exiting Christianity. What's this all about? Well, a new study from Pew Research Group projects a steady decline for Christianity in the U.S. They're looking into the future based upon the data they have. And the recent Christianity Today article based on this study, reporting about this study, states, people are giving up on Christianity. They will continue to do so. And if you're trying to predict the future religious landscape in America, according to Pew, the question is not whether Christianity will decline, it's how fast and how far. So what is going on? Uh, Well, the article says that the main mechanism that's happening for this decades-long decline, so they've studied this over the course of decades, and they're recognizing patterns of what is happening. The main mechanism is switching, quotation marks around that word, switching. Those who claimed to be Christians are simply saying they are not Christians any longer. So they're switching out of the Christian faith. Uh, The article says this mostly happens to people between the ages of 15 and 29, according to the report, with an additional 7% of Christians disaffiliating from the faith after the age of 30, unquote. So this is the thing that's happening that they're seeing um, young people who were raised as Christians who are disaffiliating out of the Christian faith. Now, the article goes on to say Pew does not have a theory about why more people are switching. The research center focuses on the data and leaves the explanations to others. Right. Would encourage you to read the article. It's actually entitled The Decline of Christianity Shows No Signs of Stopping. Again, that's a Christianity Today article and being based upon a study by Pew Research called Modeling the Future of Religion in America. Within the article, senior researcher at Pew Research, someone named Kramer, says switching out has been happening steadily, which didn't used to happen. Uh, This researcher also says it used to be that if you met someone on the street and their father and mother were Christian, then they were Christian too. That's not always true anymore. For about a third of people, that's not true anymore. Wow, that's just amazing. And of course, our minds immediately jump you know, mine, my mind does. And it thinks, well, why? Why would this be the case? Why did it not used to be this right. way? And now it is. And as we think about that question, uh, no doubt there are numerous reasons and causes for what we're seeing in our culture today and how Christianity is continuing to lose ground and we haven't been able to be on the offensive. And different groups are going to want to point to different causes, different things that have contributed to the problem. But most likely it's the case that there are just a few major root causes, even if just one main root cause. And that's what we're dealing with here at the Biblical Chronologist, because we are all about the historicity of the ancient Old Testament accounts. And 
We believe that one big reason for this decline of Christianity that we are observing around us in America today and that this study from Pew Research is reporting on, uh, we believe that one big reason is that the credibility of the foundations of the Christian faith has been undermined in a very serious way. And this undermining has everything to do with the historical reliability of the Old Testament. You know, quiet little Genesis and Exodus and the other early books. I say quiet because they're not something that we're hearing talked about. They're not at the forefront of the issues being raised today, but they are absolutely foundational to Christianity. And these things, the historicity of these early books of the Old Testament uh, has been called into question for quite a few decades, and the outworking of that has been a downward spiral. And the issue definitely is being raised today. I, I think many parents, even grandparents, don't realize the questions being raised to our young people which again goes hand in hand with this article. Why are so many so-called switching? Well, we live in a different world, folks. We, we live in a day of information right at our fingertips that just didn't used to be when, when we were young. Uh, you and I, were, when we were young, which wasn't that long ago, really, and we're not no, that old. No, just a few decades. <laughs> yeah. It, well, even back then, it wasn't the same as it is today. Just in a matter of moments today, a Christian young person can be faced with serious questions on the internet on YouTube. Not too long ago, I came across a YouTube channel where a man was very intelligently, um, just to put it mildly, tearing the Bible apart. Discrediting, Discrediting a lot it. of the foundations of the Sunday school stories That's you know, right. that kids were raised with. Noah's and, flood is a joke. Yeah. And they're talking about and trying to show that, you know, when these things were supposed to have taken place, that um, the world was thriving, nations were thriving. Where's the evidence of all of this stuff? And and so, yeah, we live in a different world. College professors, uh, young people raised in church going into colleges, and they're, you know, college professors are telling them, well, your parents meant well, your, your grandparents mean well, but it's all a fairy tale. And these people can quickly point out data and facts that a Christian young person has never heard of in 18 years of going to church. And so then what? Well, it's certainly not hard to see the correlation between this kind of thing and young people walking away from the faith. These attacks may happen directly or they may happen much more indirectly, but I've seen um, references numerous places to the fact that millennials and Gen Z, as they call them, uh, young people born all the way up to 2010, they value authenticity. They want to know what is real. Right. That's what they're after. You know, we saw the rise of the popularity of the reality shows. And I think that that was an indication to us that um, the generations coming up didn't want the fake. They didn't want the pretend and the false fronts. And so in that, we can know that they also want an authentic faith. They want something that is firmly based in reality. Gen Z, I was just reading recently, they are the first generation to never know the world without the internet. So like you were saying, Steve, they can quickly get the facts, they can uh, look up data, they can look up trusted voices in their lives, 
And of course, the algorithm is going to cater to them. So if you listen to one skeptic, they'll be glad to feed you 15 more skeptics right behind that one so that you can continue down that path. So this is the world we're in. They want to know the truth. They deserve to know it. And they're having a lot thrown at them. And so it's not hard to see the correlation between seeking for what is real, what is authentic, and the uh, basis, the foundations of Christianity being attacked way back to the ancient historicity and trickling down through the culture all the way to what we're seeing today, which is a mass exiting out of Christianity. Here's a statement from the recent theologian R.C. Sproul that I think millennials and Gen Z would wholeheartedly agree with this. You know, these young people are smart. They have information at their fingertips. They are not into what's fake and they're not into tradition. And I think they would agree with what uh, Sproul is saying in this quotation here. Now, just because a book claims to be the word of God doesn't make it the word of God. Just because a book claims to be the unvarnished truth does not make it the unvarnished truth. Anybody can make a claim like that, and more than one book does make that claim. We want to look beyond the simple claim for evidences. Is there any evidential basis for agreeing with the claim that Scripture makes? The starting point in this inquiry is this question. Does the Bible communicate basically reliable information? Is it a basically reliable historical document? Not is it inspired, not is it infallible, not is it any of that, but just is it a good historical source? Now, obviously, if the answer to that question is no, it's not even basically reliable, then there's no reason under the sun why we should spend five minutes in recreation attending its message. And I think that 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 was the end of quote there. And I think that that's what um, a university professor is going to be looking at a young person and saying, well, that's all fine and good. The theology, the inspiration, the infallibility, but it's not even giving you basic facts. But that's the question we have here. Is it giving you basic facts or is it not? And of course, here at the Biblical Chronologist, we are stating emphatically that yes, and R.C. Sproul would agree, that the Bible is definitely giving us facts, that uh, it is giving us truth, it's giving us data, evidence, and facts in support of what we believe. And those things are not optional. If the cause of truth is to be advanced then data that appears to contradict the roots of Christianity must be honestly reckoned with. It cannot just simply be ignored or sidelined. Not anymore. And you know, to that we say, praise the Lord. Yes, I agree that we are in a position now with uh, defending the historical reliability of the scriptures that we can get back on the offensive and we can say Mm -hmm. this is 100% objective historical information being given to us here enough so that we will stake our eternal destiny upon what's communicated to us in this book. Right. And our unique role here at the Biblical Chronologist is one of providing 
a data-rich apologetic for the Christian faith, specifically filling the currently large void in defending the historical accuracy of the ancient biblical accounts. This defense is absolutely foundational to a strong apologetic, and correct chronology is a prerequisite to defending biblical real-world history. And it brings to mind 1 Peter 3.15 that states, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And that giving a defense to everyone is Christian apologetics. A reasonable defense. That's what apologetics is. The Webster's Ninth New Collegiate Dictionary defines apologetics as a branch of theology devoted to the defense of the divine origin and authority of Christianity. All right. Well, next in our uh, lineup here on the podcast, we have some data to show the historical reliability of the scriptures. And we're going to get into our section called From the Archives. Now, what does that mean, from the archives? Yes, the archives of what, right? Well, the archives we're referencing here are from the Biblical Chronologist newsletter, which uh, Dr. Gerald Ardsma began to publish back in the mid-1990s. So it's been quite a few decades ago that he began to document his research findings in this newsletter. All of these archived issues of the Biblical Chronologist are available on the website there for free. You can get the PDFs and read following along the path of his research there over many, many years. But we went back and dug deep in the archives to find this fascinating little tidbit. I think um, actually this was the very first one. I think this was the first article that Dr. Arzma published. Volume one, number one, in January, February of 1995. So we're excited to resurrect this. So 27 years ago is when this article was first published. Wow. But uh, we're excited to give voice to it here today in 2022, because, you know, this information is just as fresh and relevant today as it was 27 years ago. And it really hasn't had the voice that it, sh it needs to have had. And we are so excited to be able to help communicate this out to you today. And you can communicate it out during your family gatherings over the holidays. And we can help this factual information to go forward. It's exciting. Well, and there is a wealth of information in these archives. Again, if you go to the biblicalchronologist.org, there's a an option in the sidebar on the left side called newsletters. And if you click on newsletters, it'll take you all of these the archives, all of these newsletters are in HTML format on the computer as well as PDFs. And they're all free to read and download. And so we encourage you to go there and look at it. Now, a major premise of the work here and of the biblical chronologist and Dr. Arzma is a missing millennium. The missing millennium in mi biblical chronology, according to the traditional dates, right. um, adjusting those dates a thousand years earlier, starting at the time of Samuel on back. And in fact, um, in 1995, when this article was published, uh, the missing millennium discovery was very, very new, and it was something that Dr. Ardsma had formulated as a hypothesis, and he was 
exploring it on various levels to see if it would be confirmed and corroborated. And so here we are 27 years later, and the evidence for that missing millennium is quite overwhelming. And it's so well established now that Dr. Arzma, of course, has moved into a lot of other areas of his research now. But back at this time, 1995, he was still looking at various sources to see if the missing millennium would be confirmed. And so that's what the title of this article is. Mount Sodom confirms the missing millennium. Now, this is not about Sodom and Gomorrah, as you might think when you first hear that title, but it's actually about the climate of the area surrounding the Dead Sea there in the Jordan Valley. Right. Genesis chapter 13, uh, as we said early on in the podcast today, records an observation that was made by Lot when Abraham and Lot were traveling and Lot looked over the Jordan Valley. And in this area that is today exceedingly dry and arid, Genesis chapter 13, 10 says this, And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of this Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zor. Now that's an amazing uh, thing, that an area that today is so dried up and and really desert-like is described in the Bible as well watered like the garden of Eden. Uh, It also says in the New Encyclopedia Britannica, let me uh, read this to you, describes that the present climate is like this. The Jordan Trench is a deep rift valley that varies in width. Uh, It goes on to say, descending to about 1,310 feet below sea level, the valley is exceedingly dry and overheated, and cultivation is restricted to irrigated areas or rare oases, as the Jericho, as at Jericho, or at En Gedi by the shore of the Dead Sea. So there's quite a contrast there, right? Um, because the Encyclopedia Britannica today says the area is exceedingly dry and overheated. And in Genesis chapter 13, it says that it was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. So evidently there was at least one time in the past before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah where the Jordan Valley received much more rain than it does today. Right. That would certainly be the implication. And uh, this would be a place where a skeptic could easily pick up on this and say, well, this is a tall tale because um, this region of the world is not well watered. But it'd be nice if we had some kind of record of the climate of this area in the past. And we could go back and we could say, well, let's see, what was the climate like? But lo and behold, there are researchers today researching all kinds of things. And there was a group in the early 90s that published a work called the Holocene Climatic Record of the Salt Caves of Mount Sedom or Mount Sodom by four Israeli scientists. And in a nutshell, um, of course, you can go into the show notes and into the 
original article and read all of this um, in great detail if you desire to do so. But in a nutshell, what these scientists did, which of course had nothing to do with the missing millennium or nothing to do with biblical history, uh, biblical historicity, all these scientists were trying to do was to study the past climate of the region of the Dead Sea, Jordan Valley area. So they went into the Dead Sea and the salt caves that are surrounding the Dead Sea in the on the Mount Sodom, western side of the Dead Sea there. And they were able to discern the amounts of rainfall in years gone by because uh, Mount Sodom is a salt mountain and so the rainwater in the area would make channels in the mountain that would run off into the Dead Sea and I'm not able to explain it all in detail it's definitely a very intricate science that they were doing there but they were able to basically radiocarbon date um, the different channels that had led out into the Dead Sea at different times in the past. And they were able to reconstruct what the rainfall was like going back uh, thousands and thousands of years. I think the graph that we have in the newsletter goes back for the past 7,000 years. Okay, so what are the dates for Lot? Well, the traditional date for when Lot would have lived, which of course would have been contemporary with Abraham, The traditional date for Abraham would be 2000 BC, give or take a few decades there. The new chronology predicts a date for these men to have lived 3000 BC. Now the article in the archives has a really nice chart, a little graph there. And when you look at the traditional date, which was around 2000 BC, what do we find? Right, this graph shows us the levels of the rainwater in the past 7,000 years, the level of the rainfall, I should say, in this region. And of course, the more rain that fell, the higher the level of the Dead Sea would be. And as the climate got drier, the lower the level of the Dead Sea would be. In fact, um, if you're familiar with the geography of that region, the Dead Sea is almost like it's separated into two different basins. And you have the south basin of the Dead Sea, which at times has even dried up today in, in history. Very dry as well. But in that traditional chronology, we see on this chart that the South Basin, which is this region, the Jordan Valley that Lot's describing, was completely dried up during that time. Right. The rainfall was so low at the time of the traditional date for Lot that the South Basin had even dried up. But if we add that missing millennium in, and the chart's amazing, the spike on the chart is just at its highest peak in the last 7,000 years of rainfall in that area. Yes. Lot is living at the date of the new chronology close to the very top of the highest peak of the most rainfall in that geographical region in the past 7,000 years. I think you could probably ask a five-year-old, look at this chart, where do you think they were getting the most amount of rain? And they could easily pinpoint this nice 
peak sticking out above all of the rest. And it's right there where Lot would have lived based on the new chronology and where he would have stood there and looked out and said, this is well watered like like the the garden garden of of the the Lord. Lord. Yes, we can very easily see how the Bible is shown to be true right here with this fascinating account. And again, go to the archives yourself and read these articles. We're just trying to whet your appetite here. We, we don't have time to get into all of the details, but that's just one. That's just one observation there of many that are just continued, that continue to build the case that our chronology is simply off by a thousand years. When you put the thousand years into biblical historicity, it just matches right up with real world history. And again, I would just reiterate that these researchers and scientists were not interested in trying to show the historical reliability of the Bible. Um, And that's what makes this so fascinating because their independent research that they're doing where they are just presenting data, just plain, simple, hard data, when matched with the biblical account at the proper dates, uh, confirms the reality of it. And there's not any bias going on with the with the men doing the research there. That's right. Well, moving on, Jen, we've been on the road. We've been doing some driving. Yes, we lately. have. We've been yeah. there and we've been back again. Been there and back again. And I will say the fall foliage was um, oh, spectacular all yes. the way through. And I'll have to say my favorite was Maryland. If anybody's Please. listening that lives in Maryland, you have some beautiful, quaint, gorgeous <laughs> fall foliage, church steeples, hillsides. It was lovely. Some people may be wondering what in the world we're talking about, but <laughs> our family... Our family's been on the road with the Truth in Time ministry. We've been privileged to be able to uh, hit some churches and a Christian school even in in our state here in Illinois, as well as in the beautiful state of Virginia, my my home state where I was uh, born and raised. We have been able to present music and Truth in Time sessions in four different locations over the past month. The focus of our sessions was the exodus in real world history. And yes, we packed our five children in our van with uh, our sound equipment and... Yeah, along with a complete sound system, musical instruments, and suitcases and all of that. And it was an exciting time. The kids just obeyed us completely and wholeheartedly the whole way no issues no fighting no fighting no bickering no selfishness such love and, and brotherly kindness one to another dad and mom kept their cool <laughs> i mean didn't yeah yeah hopefully right. you can hear the sarcasm in our voices <laughs> well but we lived to tell the tale and it was an exciting an exciting trip <laughs> it was and god was good to us and we enjoyed it and we're excited to get out more And if you would like for Truth in Time to uh, come to your ministry, uh, Christian school, got to go to a Christian school. That was that was a blessing. Yes, it Um, was. And those students were just inspiring to see them learning there and wanting wanting to benefit from hearing about the chronology work uh, that we're involved in. So meetings are now being scheduled for 2023, you can follow along with the Truth in Time ministry at our Facebook page. Yeah, we would encourage you to do that. We're trying to post updates there at the Truth in Time Facebook page, photos of a little bit of our travels and just updates on 
where we are and what we're involved in doing and a little glimpse behind the scenes, we'd love to have you join us there. You can also go to our website, truthintime.org, for more information or contact us there. Send us an email or fill out the form. We've had two recent comments from folks who have been supplementing the newly discovered vitamins for a few years. Here's an individual from Rhode Island who simply said, I love this product. I love the product. And again, this individual has been supplementing the vitamins for a few years now. Here's another one from someone from California. We are going to keep going with it. It has really helped our energy levels, my husband's especially, and has really helped my headaches. So we've got to reorient ourselves a little bit here. We always talk about the anti-aging vitamins towards the end of our segment before we get to Helen's view. But it's always, it feels kind of like a big switch. Uh, We've been talking about apologetics. We've been talking about Mount Sodom. We've been talking about a ministry, truth in time. And and now we jump into anti-aging vitamins. And it's like, how did we get here? And, And what does this have to do with any of the other? But I will say that, surprisingly enough, apologetics and anti-aging vitamins do go hand in hand because, of course, if you've been at all familiar with Dr. Ardsma's research and the aging part of the research, it's coming straight out of the longevity data given to us there in the book of Genesis. Again, like I mentioned earlier, quiet little Genesis uh, has a lot to offer us. It has a treasure trove. That's what we told the children at the Christian school. You know, the Bible is a treasure trove of data of ancient history that you cannot find in any other document today. And the secular science world would do well to pay attention to it. So, That's where the anti-aging vitamins were discovered from is the longevity data and the true nature of Noah's flood that's given to us in Genesis and through the chronology work and just pieces on decades upon decades of work there. So when it comes to apologetics, you know, a reasonable defense for the Christian faith and anti-aging vitamins. I would venture to say, I don't know if you would agree with this, Steve, but I don't know if anybody has ever before given a reasonable defense for the longevity data recorded in the book of Genesis. A Uh, real world, a real world reason and answer for that. Do you think that's been done before? I think there have definitely been theories that have been um, thrown around and talked about, but no. How could we? I think what this does is it causes us as Christians who say we are Bible believers to truly ask ourselves, do we believe these stories in the Bible? That men and women were living for hundreds and hundreds of years, nearly a thousand. And could there be a real world reason for that? Or will we just, of course, if you ask anyone today and even some Christians, do you think men ever lived to be 869 years old? Uh, no, <laughs> you know, and so then right away we are putting Genesis into the category of, oh, yes, well, everything's larger than life in a good fairy tale. Well, so. or you do have Christians who are trying to make the stories out to be not literal, that the, these numbers were used by ancient people years ago, often when they were telling uh, tales about their history and, and, and on and on. So so taking the Bible at face value and taking it literally, 
do we believe it? And do we have a good reason? Right. What we come up with through um, the decades of research that have been done here is, in fact, a reasonable defense for the fact that men were living that long. And this is how and this is why. And this is how and why the lifespans declined to the point where uh, we are today dying at 75, 80 years old. So it is, it's it's apologetics at the most real world level that you can get. Now, of course, there's much more work to be done. Uh, there's many more reports and data, mice um, in the lab and all kinds of things that are gonna be forthcoming in the years to come. But what we have right now is these two newly discovered vitamins and they truly are a part of an apologetic for the Christian faith. And you can read many more testimonials about the vitamins and purchase the vitamins and get them for yourself and your family at thebiblicalchronologist.org. Well, next we have Helen's view and we're always um, excited to hear what Helen has to share with us each month. And this month, Helen is talking about some work that she and Dr. Ardsma are doing in the laboratory with the lab mice, as well as working together as husband and wife in this. And you know what this makes me think work. of when I, I see her pictures yeah. here of the two of them in the lab together. It makes me think of a movie we watched recently, which was called Madame Curie. Yeah. And this couple... The Curies worked together in science. Both of them were scientists and were called to bring the discovery of radium to the world, which was a world-changing discovery, of course. And the two of them, you know, they weren't, they didn't receive uh, many accolades or encouragement from outside sources, but the two of them together labored and knew that this was what their calling was, and they encouraged one another. Now, um, Helen's going to share with us here, and although she is not a scientist herself, she has certainly had a role of support, which even now is finding her in the mice lab on a regular basis. One of our daily tasks is taking care of the mice that are used for the longevity research. We have two experiments running at the present time with over a hundred cages to tend to each day. We're getting ready to start a third experiment soon. Because these are anti-aging longevity experiments, each takes over three years following the mice from very young to very old age. This means that daily chores need to be done more than a thousand times per experiment. Gerald and I share the work in the mouse lab My job is to check each mouse cage to make sure the mice have water and food and that none has died. I mark the cages that need to be taken care of by Gerald. I fill the humidifier if it needs it, as the mice like it warm, and warming the room can make the air too dry. It is kind of like a sauna in there, which will be nice when the cold weather hits. Gerald has already set aside the water bottles from his previous day's work for me to wash and sterilize. I do that in the chemistry lab and then put them on racks to dry. Gerald comes in after I have completed my assignments. Gerald does one section of mice per day, emptying their litter, putting in new litter, filling their new sterilized water bottles, and filling their food trays. He writes notes in his lab book to keep track of dates of death. These dates are used to plot the data. 
showing him how the different groups are responding to the various tests he is doing. These daily chores serve to remind me that, as in all of life, much of the work which is required of us is mundane, routine, and boring. We used to tell our children when they were young that these boring jobs build character, and they give you quiet time to think. Very little of life, including research, is made up of those thrilling eureka moments. Let's not become discouraged in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not become weary. Galatians 6, 9. And that ends part one, and now I'm going to go into part two. Right now, we are two days away from leaving our farm and moving to our new apartment in the ARP campus. This is extremely exciting, but also very exhausting. We are very grateful to God for all that he has done for Gerald and myself. It has been my unique privilege to work with Gerald for over 48 years. My goal on a daily basis has been my life for yours. With that dying to self comes a deep contentment and fulfillment of serving my husband and my God in this way. Marriage is kind of like a dance. One leads, the other follows, and they flow together almost on air around the room. If both lead, there is constant conflict. If both follow, it is chaos. God has an order for marriage that he designed for our good, and God has assigned the man to be the leader. This wasn't my idea. God, our creator and designer, gave the directions, and I believe that the key to our happy marriage is that we work hard to follow the directions. The dynamic of a good marriage is fun to be a part of. Two people with different gifts, different hormones, different personalities, different DNA, different viewpoints, working together in a holy harmony, each with equal worth and value, each vital to the marriage. Marriage is a partnership, and in our case, we also have a business partnership. We each bring something unique to the partnership. I love the practicality of working together, sharing the joys and sorrows, planning, problem-solving, etc. We can call a business meeting at any time. I love that we can spend so many hours together every day. And Ecclesiastes 4, 9-12 through 12 says, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him that is alone when he falleth, and hath not another to lift him up. I love this quote by Mother Teresa. None of us, including me, ever do great things, but we can all do small things with great love, and together we can do something wonderful. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again in a couple of weeks. All right. Well, as we wrap it up here, we do thank you for joining us. And as always, we welcome your feedback, your comments, uh, your questions. If this food for thought here in the holiday season prompts any interesting discussions, we would love to hear about it. Yes, we sure would. Send us an email. We'll be sure to get back with you. And from our home to yours, I want to wish you a happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. And we will see you next month, 1st of December. 